to Cinelix. My name is Adam Marsh. I am joined as ever by my uh, our Cinelix uh, resident expert, Daryl Buxton. How are you, Daryl? I'm fine, Adam. Hi, hi to you. Hi to everyone listening. Right, we are, we're doing a little, something a little bit different today. We are looking at the book, a newly published book by PS Publishing, uh, England Screaming by Sean Hogan. Yeah, we do. We do read as well as watch films. So yes, yes, <laughs> we read. We read books about, <laughs> about films. films. So uh, <laughs> not not just films. <laughs> yeah. So this this um, this is um, author, screenwriter, and director Sean Hogan's um, attempt to weave a common history of British horror into sort of a Marvel esque style shared universe, but instead of Spider Man. Crossing paths with Iron Man, we have the Omens, Damien Thorne crossing paths with Christopher Lee's Dracula, and and the Night of the Demons, Julian Carswell crossing paths with the Devil Rides Out, Duke de Richelieu. Yeah. Now I know Adam, you're uh, you're um, I, I love film noir, but you're you're a great reader of, of sort of noir type crime stuff, and uh, um, so I haven't read David Thompson's novel Suspects, but I believe you have, so uh, do you want to talk a bit about that and how it sort of links in with this? Yeah, sure, I mean, obviously David, David not obviously, David Thompson, a well-renowned film theorist, critic, um, has written many, many books on, on, on cinema and cinema theory. He wrote a book in the mid-80s called Suspects, which was a similar thing to what we're talking about today. It was his attempt to weave a common history through all the film noir characters from the 1930s, 40s and 50s. Yeah, so, 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 so that's the basis of this book. It is a similar format to, to what David Thompson did in, in, in that book. Now, David Thompson, obviously, because he, he was much more of a film critic rather than an author. So his, his book was very much more like, and here's almost like a tick list of all your favourite film noir characters and how he could bring them all together in, in, in a story that didn't quite hang together as a novel, was more like a series of short stories that created a shared history. Hogan's much more of a, of a, of a writer, a creative writer, I think, than David Thompson is. And he does manage to create more of a novel-esque style to his work than, than Thompson does. But I think when I read David Thompson's book, I think I was in a position that many, many people will be reading this book. And many people won't be, actually, ironically. I didn't know that many film noir at the time. I'd seen, obviously, De- Double Indemnity. And I'd seen um, The Big Sleep and Maltese Falcon and those things. But some of the ones that are a bit more second tier, be you know, not as well known, he was using a lot of characters from those, which I didn't know at all. So when I was reading it and I was reviewing it for, for, my, for my master's degree, I found it really, really tricky to review because are you reviewing Thompson's skill as a writer or are you reviewing the original plot of Out of the Past or the original plot of uh, Angel Face or whatever, you know, whatever, whatever film noir uh, he was riffing on? Um, are you reviewing the nonsensical plot there? Or David Thompson's, and I think it's a similar thing with what we were talking about today with with Hogan's book. Where where does the the idea that Sean is retelling the Medusa touch in five hundred words, <laughs> uh, you know, and where where does his skill as a writer start to to flourish in in, in this book? Yeah, I think the, um, the 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 skill of England screaming is is in the overall picture. You know, individual chapters like there's a chapter on Dead Man's Shoes, the, the great local, you know, the, the sort of Derbyshire classic revenge movie of recent years. Shane Meadows, Paddy Considine, um, that that sort of just just sort of rejigs the plot of the movie in five pages or whatever and then it adds a adds a little bit of a, a, a spin at the end but you know to anyone who's seen dead man's shoes you'd be thinking all oh, right you know I, I know this story I know, I know all about what happens to this character you know i know why he's doing what he does and then you know there's a bit towards the end where you think oh that's that's new that adds something but you might leave disappointed from reading that as an individual chapter but i think once you've read the book you sort of see where that character fits into the whole sort of tapestry of what Hogan's doing, you know, because he's, he's written a very, very sort of political novel out of this, this weird 
sort of subject matter that almost doesn't fit politics. And that's one of the things we want to talk about today is how political the British horror film actually is. And this is something that people tend not to necessarily think about. And I think Sean Hogan has absolutely nailed that. And he's taken all these old movies, most of them from the, the late 60s or through the 70s. But they're from various different eras as well. You know, he goes right back to uh, to the 1940s and he comes right forward to stuff that's uh, that's only recently come out. So uh, he weaves this tapestry of um, sort of political horror and social horror. and he makes the overall story very, very relevant to today, even though some of the main characters are like vampires and demons and supernatural figures, or even if they're human, they claim to have magic powers, you know, and yet he keeps it very rooted in reality and he keeps it very rooted in a, a sense of Britain today and how the Britain of today has, has been built over the past 90 or 100 years. The, the individual stories, some work better than others, but I think the connections are very meaningful. He, you know, whereas Thompson and other authors that work in this sort of metafiction and, and weaving these worlds out of, out of existing characters often just get a kick out of doing that. They, the, the fun for them is, oh yeah, we're, we're mixing this character with that one. I think Sean Hogan has made sure that if he, if he throws two or three characters together, he's doing it for a reason. He's doing it to make a point. Yeah, and also it never, I think one of the, one of the difficulties with this kind of writing is, is, is making it not feel like fan fiction. Exactly. It never, ever feels like fan fiction when you read England Screaming. It feels like, no, no, these characters are meant to be used in this way. Yeah, they're not like it's not some sort of fantasy of the author. <laughs> so, oh, wouldn't it be great if this person met this person? There is, there is obviously there is, inherently there is that, but it's not it's it's not to the detriment of the of the story that's flowing through the whole book. Because what you said earlier on about how it's, it's, I think it's billed as a short story collection, isn't it? Yes, yeah. And I'm not sure that's the correct term. I'm, equally, I'm not sure novels the correct term either. There needs to be some sort of in between description of the two because the short story collection. I don't think they all work individually. I think they have to be part of a tapestry of short stories that is building towards one one conclusion, as you would in a novel chapters. But equally, it's not—it's not a novel in the sense of like you got through characters going all the way through, and you got a central person to focus on or anything like that. It's, it's still very much a short story collection, fragmented, I guess, is, is is the best description of it. Yeah, it's almost a novel by accident. Uh, all I—I I th- I think I think there's design there. I, I don't. Yeah, maybe that's not really true. It's not a novel by accident, but uh, um, it. Uh... You know it reminded me of actually, Daryl. It reminded me of um, of like a TV series. Yeah, you know, like a like a twenty four episode TV series where they can't just tell one story for twenty four episodes. Yeah, they go off yeah. on all these little side stories, monster of the week stories. Yeah, like like X-Files. something trickling yeah. along in the background that ties into the main story. You've got your main arc going on, yeah, and, and you can tell individual stories within that, but it always comes back to the main core idea. Yeah, yeah, and and in this case, that main core idea is the development of modern Britain and how we've reached the point that we're at today through the eyes of, as I say, sort of vampires, demons, the Antichrist, and the people, the, the everyday ordinary humans who come into contact with these, uh, these, these weird characters. We should also mention, before we forget, that uh, Sean has actually done a companion book to England Screaming called Three Mothers, One Father. And this is a much shorter version. So if, if, if you're thinking of delving into England Screaming, you might want to give Three Mothers, One Father a go first because it's a much cheaper and much shorter uh, little book. And... Um, it's uh, it's almost a, a teaser for the main event. He's done the same sort of thing, mixing characters together from horror movies, but he's gone European with this one. It's films like The Ninth Gate, Suspiria, Lisa and the Devil, uh, Daughters of Darkness. You've got the, the, the arc there. He's done the same sort of thing there. You've got the arc of Telly Savalas, devil character from Mario Barber's Lisa and the Devil, is combating... The Three Mothers from the Dario Argento movies, uh, Suspiria and Inferno. 
and then you've got all these other related characters sort of coming in. So if you want to dip in and try Sean's style on, on a budget, you know, and in, on a very quick read, try his, his Euro novel and then go for the main event. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm about 20 pages away from finishing that book and I'm thoroughly, thoroughly enjoying it. I think there's much more of a, a through line. I think, like you say, with the, with the, with the, the central plot, of of the three mothers versus the devil. <laughs> yeah, oh, you know, yeah, that's a great pitch already. <laughs> oh yeah, away. yeah. And, and we, they established that fairly early on in the book. And you, you're every story since, and it's like positioning chess pieces in this in this infernal game uh, of death that's happening. Yeah. And again, this arc thing sort of works. You know, you've got the individual stories that, that kind of work on their own. You know, every every sort of ten pages is tells tells its own little story. But yeah, you're right. There's there's always this thing lurking in the background of this 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 sort of main main core that we keep being dragged back to. And you're you're saying you've got twenty pages to go, Adam. I've read the book, and England screaming actually ends on. As it, as it should do, I'm, I'm not going to give anything away, but as, as, as a book about England in the 21st century should do, it ends on a, a, a bit of a low-key sort of downer, you know, but it's, that's totally different to the ending of Three Mothers, One Father, which is all-out carnage across a major European city. So well, you, can, uh, you, you kind of expect that from that, don't you? I mean, something that's... that's um... Uh, much more indebted to the, the, the work of Argento and, and, and Barber and things like that. I think those kind of endings are much more prevalent in, in those European ones. I mean, the yeah, sure. Or Suspiria, you know, it's, it's, it's wanton mass destruction, isn't it? Yeah, Sean is definitely commenting there on on you know the very reserved qualities of of English horror films against the the all out chaos and and wildness of uh, of an Italian horror movie. You know, uh, I think there's um, there's a great chapter in England screaming, and I'll I'll talk a little bit about this now. Is one that a chapter that's really indicative of how the book works. There's a chapter where. Um, if you remember the old public information films, you'll remember the one about the spirit of dark and lonely water, the hooded figure who, who makes sure that children drown in, in ponds and in lakes and think when they're doing things they're not supposed to do, voiced by the great Donald Pleasance. And what Hogan has is a chapter where the spirit of dark and lonely water appears to a little girl who's who's playing in the river at the back of her, her parents' house. And of course, you might tell from that description that it's it's the uh, the daughter of the couple in Don't Look Now. And so Sean comes up with this idea that she drowns and kicks off the whole event of Don't Look Now because of the influence and the presence of the spirit of dark and lonely water. But then added to this, there's, there's a more obscure British horror movie called Neither the Sea Nor the Sand, which was made around the same time as Don't Look Now. And what Sean suggests there is that the, the lead female character from that movie and the lead female character from Don't Look Now are actually sisters and that they both go through sort of water-based tragedies at the same time. And then... Um, uh, sort of contact each other and and share their grief. Again, this chapter, like the book as a whole, this chapter ends on a real sort of downbeat, very quiet, very gloomy sort of note. Not showy, leaves us sort of hanging in the air a little bit. But it's how British horror films of that era used to end. It's it's how you you go back and watch films like uh, Jose Larraza's uh, Symptoms, for instance. And these films do end often with a, an enigmatic shot of, of the character sat in shadows in the darkness, staring out at the audience. Repulsion does it, you know, the Polanski film. And, and uh, um, a lot of British horror ends with, with scenes like this. There's, there's a movie that Sean refers to again and again in the book called Full Circle, also known as The Haunting of Julia. And it was based on a novel by Peter Straub. And the, the film version was shot in England with uh, Mia Farrow as the star. And that's another one that ends in that same sort of way. And it's got a very sort of downbeat, very grim quality, um, not giving too much away about the story. You know, it, it, the, the film itself 
presents these events but it leaves you to sort of make up your own mind about what's going on and to try and delve in and and um, figure out exactly what it is you're watching you know and um both the book as a whole both england screaming as a whole and certain individual chapters come to a climax that really does leave you sort of thinking all oh, right that's that's a little bit sort of creepy and a bit sinister but i'm not quite sure why I, and the, the author's not quite sort of explained what happens next you know and i think that's all totally in keeping with the style of british horror film that he's uh, he's referring to here and it also it also feeds into his overall message of you know how we've come to the situation that we're in in britain today because i'm sure we all feel like we're left hanging at the moment you know well we talked we talked earlier on about how like the difference in british and european horror and i think a lot of those british films didn't have a climax you say you said like building to a climax they didn't have the climax and it's similar in this one here where it builds to the climax but the climax is it finishes just before the climax yeah almost yeah, yeah and it's a yeah. it's a, that, that that's a recurring thing in a lot of like british uh, british a specific strand of those British horror movies. Obviously, we're not talking. I mean, it, it, as much as those movies are represented in this book, the, he also references the ones that have big climaxes. You know, he's talking Devil Rides Out. He is talking Dracula as well, and they do have very definitive climaxes. But when he when he does, interestingly, he, he uses characters from from those movies. Interestingly, both both played by Christopher Lee, who feeds into this book in a big way, which we'll go on to talk about. But uh, but he takes the character of Dracula and he takes the, the Duke de Richelieu from Devil Rides Out, but he puts them in he, he puts them in very low key situations. Not so much the Duke; he gets involved in a, a, a big story. But what how Dracula is treated and who he's treated by in particular is is very interesting and done in that same sort of left hanging sort of what's going to happen next sort of style you know it's not it's it's not the dracula of the swirling cape and the the, the menacing appearance and do, the domination of his um uh, his populace you know the people around him it's it's very much dracula trapped enclosed imprisoned under interrogation and it's a very very unusual sort of take on on that character and i think again it shows the tone that sean is 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 trying to find here i think i think with the dracula character as well it shows like him learning from his his movies <laughs> you know, almost yeah. like you, know, yeah. you can't just you can't just keep doing the same thing you've been doing drac mate you know you know it ain't working every every so often i'm having to like dig you up and resurrect you again yeah you yeah. know um it ain't working now this is one thing that Sean does brilliantly, and there's one uh, one particular moment in the book, or one particular chapter, one instance of this, where he um, one of the main characters, as you'll see from the book's cover, this is no spoiler, is um, perhaps the main character in the story is Damien Thorne, the Antichrist from the Omen films, and we trace Damien as the Omen movies do from birth through to his teenage years and into adulthood and into becoming a very powerful figure. Uh, but Sean's got his own take on what happens to Damien Thorne and Thorne Industries later in life, after, after the Omen. Now, Omen fans will know that the third Omen movie was called The Final Conflict. And it's, it's not as good as the Omen or Damien Omen 2, to say the least. And it's got a lot of uh, sort of flaws and mistakes and things that go against the the mythology of the series for instance the idea that we, it, this idea is built about these the ancient daggers that can be they're the only thing that can be used to kill damien and there's this whole sort of story brought in about how there are seven daggers and they've all got to be used at the same time and planted in a particular ritual pattern and what happens in the final conflict is they forget all that and they they, they there's like this group of comedy monks and they each get given a dagger and they go in and attack damien one by one and it all ends in catastrophe what sean does in this story is he points out that Okay, guys, you know, you're reading this, you're reading my take on, on the final conflict, Omen Part 3, and I know as, as the writer that it messes up the Omen continuity. You know as a reader and viewer that it messes it all up. 
Now, if I know it and you know it, you can bet your bottom dollar that Damien Thorne knows it as well. And he writes that into the story. He writes the flaws of the movie into his story as weaknesses, as things that can be exploited by Damien. And it's a brilliant piece of work and a brilliant take on that movie. He does it with others as well. He, as you say, he does it with, with the, the Dracula franchise. Um, he does it on other occasions. He'll take a film that's maybe got one or two little weak spots and he'll point that out to you in his story and he'll use those as elements that his characters can exploit. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think he, do, he does a good job in, if not quite retconning, he does certainly job a good job in 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 making lesser films seem more important. I guess I think one of the one of the big um, standouts is this for for me is the scream and scream again and the character of Fremont yeah. um, by Christopher Lee. Relatively small character in that movie, um, but as re reinvigorated in this book as a sort of um, Machiavellian British Secret Service overlord i guess yeah adam have have you seen um, have you seen the movie deathline the um yeah. the donald pleasant because because of course what sean does in england screaming is there's a character played by christopher lee in deathline called stratton villiers and he's a very similar kind of guy to fremont a sort of shady high-ranking civil servant who does all the messy stuff that we never get to find out about in real life you know and christopher lee i think shot one day or one morning on deathline and they they sort of edit him into the film every now and then but when you watch deathline you can you can tell that it's all shot on one set in the same day you know that he's he's done about an hour's work on the movie but i think what sean does here and I, i'm this this is the point that you seemed about to make so uh uh, I've, I've sort of nipped in and we'll make it for you that um, <laughs> that um, Fremont and Stratton Villiers, who Sean mashes up as the same character. This is something that he does with other people in the book. He mashes them together and says they're the same person. And he uses that fact that they're only in their parent films for a very small amount of time as a virtue. Again, it's the idea is that these these guys are only in the films for two or three minutes because... It's, it, it's not because Christopher Lee had only got a day free to film on. It's because this civil servant character that he's playing is in the parlance of the fast show. He's a little bit way, he's a little bit were, you know. He flips in and out. He comes in when he's needed, you know. He sort of clears up all the government mess. What's fascinating about this, of course, is you get this Fremont Stratton Villiers hybrid. Two things about that. One is that um, the nature of Scream and Scream again is that it's all about um, people being built from composite parts like Frankenstein uh, monsters, you know. But the idea is they're going to be sort of superhumans. They're going to be the human of the future. And there's just a suggestion in the movie that Fremont might be one of these. Um, so you've got that, that angle to it that Sean sort of just leaves hanging in the background. And of course, the other angle is that you've got this Fremont Stratton Villiers mashup from Scream and Scream Again and Deathline. And then, as we've already said, one of the main people that he interrogates is Count Dracula. So you've got Christopher Lee twice in the same body <laughs> questioning an imprisoned Christopher Lee. And it's a head spinner. I think that's where he's having a little bit of fun with the readers who know sure. these movies very well. It's like, isn't it great? You know, this is something you couldn't possibly shoot. You know, if it was a movie, you couldn't no, possibly no. shoot this. Or, so, or you'd need um, a hell of a lot of CGI in order to do it. Now, yeah. can I can I pick you up on a point there, Adam? Because you 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 talk you talk there about how the the book has got massive appeal to um, to people who know these films. How do, you, how do you think it plays or would play to someone who's coming in fairly cold? I, I, I think it's one of those books that you would read with a notebook next to you and you'd be writing down stuff. OK, this is it'd be almost like a research project as you're reading it. So you'd be watching, you'd be reading it, and then you're thinking, "Oh, who's that character?" That seems like, and you write down the characters and maybe Google search it. Okay, I need to see, I need to see that film. So it'd be that kind of experience. It wouldn't be the usual just getting lost in the book. He establishes very, I think, as I say, I think it's much more successful than Suspects in having that accessibility. But its very nature is inaccessible to people who haven't seen the films. So, so I think, I think it is accessible. 
and you can you can read it without having seen the films because you get the idea that you know that this guy you, you don't need a lot of the stuff that you've absorbed through general cultural awareness. Yeah, you know you know who Damien is. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know who Damien. You know you know Damien the Antichrist. You know Dracula. You know you know all the a lot of the characters you know. There's enough in there to to keep you going. But I do think that some of the references are going to get lost on you without I mean yeah. particularly particularly the subtext of what you're talking about like the political aspects of these things a lot of that's going to, going to get missed if you don't know the references that he's subverting and changing and tinkering with especially with John Mauler being the sort of other main character he's he's the guy who pits himself against Damien and uh, and and against the entire british establishment Really, you know, if, if you've not seen the movie The Medusa Touch with Richard Burton as, as that character, you are going to miss a, a fair amount, I think, in, in, uh, in reading England Screaming, because you need to know this character's personality. You need to know that um, he's, he's viewed by many people who come into contact with him as being a sort of conspiracy theorist and a sort of David Icke type character, but with incredible charisma. He's got all that Richard Burton charisma, you know, but it turns out that all the stuff that he's saying to you, including the claims of his own superpowers and abilities to destroy buildings and crash aeroplanes and so on, using the power of his mind, it turns out that that's all true. And um, and so you don't if if you've not seen the Medusa Touch, you do at least need to know that about this character. A that he's played by Richard Burton, so that you're picturing Richard Burton in your mind. Although that's not, that's not difficult because there's a huge picture of him on the cover of the book. And B that he's got this charisma about him, and that he sort of operates a little bit under the radar in the way that Fremont does on the other side, you know, he's, he's almost a sort of mirror image of Fremont, the inverse of him. So he's got this campaign going to bring the entire establishment down to its knees, you know, and get Britain back on a proper footing. But, um, but the difference is that um, Fremont, Stratton Villiers, whatever you want to call him, is, is working as the head of a big government department, albeit a shady underground one. He's got a lot of staff working for him. Mauler is a loner. He's, he's doing it on his own. And he, he, there's the sense, both in the Medusa Touch and in the novel England Screaming, that he might just be doing all of this for himself, no matter how, what he professes about uh, wanting to do it to save the nation and doing it to save the common man and so on. There's always this sense there within this character that he's actually just doing this because he wants to. And it's it's what what he's going to get out of it. With that character, is he just in search of an antagonist? You know, he's he's all this kind of he's he's waging war against the British establishment. Yeah, yeah. And Whereas, if it wasn't them, it'd be something else. Yeah, he's very he's very much like a conspiracy theorist. Mm-hmm. And there's another character in the book who is too. Who is uh, if people know the film The Shout and and Derbyshire people should because it stars Alan Bates and John Hurt. So uh, it's a film we've shown at Quad. Um, the Shout, very low key um, late seventies British horror film. Only got a handful of characters in it, but it's got this character played by Alan Bates called Charles Crossley who wanders out of the wilderness. He claims that he's been living in Australia. He claims that he's centuries old, even though he looks about 40. And he claims that he can kill people by shouting. He's got the ability of death by shout. And um, and again, like Mauler, nobody believes him. Everyone thinks, oh, he's, he's crazy, he's insane. And again, he's another character in the book who, like Mauler, is sort of railing against the establishment and uh, against everything that's going on in this country. But he's not the kind of guy you want to sort of, uh, you don't want to walk behind his flag, you know. With, with, with characters like John Mauler, raging against the establishment, raging against sort of like intangible villains, conspiracy theories, is part of that sort of like, is he doing it for himself? What's he doing it for? Where's the... In this book, they give him, they give him a face to aim at that there's actually a person, Damien Thorne, here is your villain. Here is the person you're railing at. And that almost changes his path a little bit. He's not just railing against the establishment in a, in a non-specific kind of way. He, he, he focuses the character of John Mauler in, this, in the, in the yeah. book um, uh, to a degree that isn't in the film. 
I, I think I think a lot of, a lot of you know genuine conspiracy theorists would would panic if they were suddenly faced with a real target. You know, he more the difference here is Mauler because Mauler knows that his powers are really there. He know he knows what he can do. He's 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 actually wanting this. He 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 wants a target and he he knows that he's not a conspiracy theorist he knows that he's right about himself and he therefore concludes that he's right about everything else and he's got that much of an ego that he would he would put himself forward and and, and claim that as a position but he is actually right certainly in 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 the context of the the film and the book you know he is right about everything there is there is an establishment that's that's conspiring against if if not mankind in general he, he feels they're conspiring against him and he's going to go and do something about it and yeah you're right um sean brilliantly gives us these these antagonists he pitches these people against one another and again the, the character of fremont is absolutely fascinating in all this because um he's supposed to be working for the establishment but he wouldn't he'd rather work for a government he'd rather be a sort of dominic cummings type figure than work for a big businessman like damian thorne so he's sort of operating a bit as a, a, a as a bit of a loose cannon he's, he's sort of working for damian but not necessarily wanting to and and he's got his own agenda going on and you do get the sense with with the character that he sort of enjoys his work if he's torturing someone or if he's putting them in some kind of weird contraption or something so that he can inter interrogate them he actually gets a thrill out of it you know there's christopher lee's character in deadline occasionally he's a very stern-faced character in a bowler hat and um uh, christopher lee doing his, his his best sort of glance to camera but occasionally that character will do a little smirk or a half smile you know sean even writes a line of dialogue in the book at one point referring to um stratton villiers smile and you you can you can see christopher lee doing it you know and there's this sense of fun there's this sense of wicked playfulness about what he does so yeah you've you've got mauler you've got damien but then you've got this this other character sort of drifting between them. You've also got brilliantly um, the character of Peter Quint from Henry James' uh, Turn of the Screw, which was filmed as The Innocent in 1961. And he's he's dead. He's a ghost. You know, that's the whole point of the character. He's a, he's a ghost, and he and he's a ghost from from decades ago. So how is Sean going to write Peter Quint into this book? Because he needs to be there. He's the sort of character who needs to be in this story. And what he does is brilliant. He takes the movie The Servant, the Joseph Losey film, which isn't a horror film, but it's got, it's, it's got appeal to horror fans, I think. You know, it's in, in, in fact, you know, uh, I'm saying it's not a horror film, but there was a sort of horror remake of it 10 years later called Blue Blood with Oliver Reed. So with Blue Blood, they emphasise the satanic and mysterious qualities that are sort of underlying in Dirk Bogard in The Servant. And what Sean does is he says, OK, you know, I've, I've established this world where ghosts exist, where characters can be possessed, where we've got seances and so on. Why not have the ghost of Peter Quint? If, if Fremont and Stratton Villiers can sort of body hop into one another, ghosts obviously can. So why doesn't Peter Quint possess the Hugo Barrett character from The Servant? And he does this, and then this Peter Quint-Hugo hybrid then go off to work for Damien Thorne. And so suddenly you've got three or four chapters that have all been separate short stories in the book, all suddenly tied together in, in a very, very effective way. What what do you think? I mean, I'm, I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed reading and then ticking off the list of films that I haven't yet seen or films I do want to see and uh, watch again. What was the most surprising inclusion in this book, do you think? I guess other than the spirit of Dark and Lonely Water, which was like a really out, out left field <laughs> choice to include. As you, as you know, I'm, I'm a real sort of crate digger when it comes to British horror. You know, I, I, I know the absolute sort of 
depths and I, I love looking for little nuggets that people haven't heard of um, or certainly a mainstream audience won't know. One of my all-time favourites and it's a film that does everything that Sean does in his book in terms of politics and studying the British social and class system is there's a film it goes under a number of titles it was released as The Corpse in, in the UK around 1970 then it then it got released in America as Crucible of Horror and I think it's also been shown as Velvet House, but I know it best as The Corpse. And it's a film starring Michael Goff. And uh, Sean does a whole chapter on that. And again, it's a sort of standalone chapter, but it just feeds into the narrative nicely in that it tells you that in certain pockets of Britain, as with Dead Man's Shoes, he does the same with that. He, he just does these little isolated chapters where he sort of reminds you that there are these individual characters dotted around Britain who are suffering as a result of what Damien Thorne is up to, what Stratton Villiers and Fremont is up to, what Maul is up to, you know. And the, the message that we're getting there from Sean is that these are characters that actually exist in Britain. They've got equivalents around the country in real life, you know, who are being affected by government policy, who are being affected by the, the coronavirus and so on, who are being affected by... Um, the situation overseas in Europe and in America and so on and uh, the corpse is great because it's this little isolated story it's only got four characters in it and it's it's a um a, a city a city businessman who sort of commutes from his country house and he's got a son who's almost like a sort of duplicate of him who, who sort of goes to work with him and and so you've got you've got this sort of guy in his 40s and his sort of son in his 20s who's like a little mini mini version of him with the same sort of political views and the same views about uh, the social strata and crucially the same views about women. And also in the household, you've got a wife and you've got a daughter and the men and Michael Goff's character in particular just rule the roost over this household. The plot of the corpse is that the, the, the mother and daughter plot to murder him and bury his body so they can get rid of him because they're fed up with, with the way he's treating them. And they do this, and what happens is he simply, he simply doesn't die. He's, he doesn't come back as a zombie or anything. He, he, he just comes back as himself. And you're sort of scratching your head thinking, this, this is so unconventional. What's happening here? And, and uh, it's, it's such a clever, original horror plot. You can't, you can't look at the corpse as being... A straightforward horror movie you can't it makes no sense if you try and approach it as a straightforward film it demands that you put an interpretation on it it demands that you think about it and put extra layers and levels on and a lot of audiences don't like that in their movies they just like to go along with a bag of popcorn put their feet up watch guys shooting each other you know this film doesn't allow you to do that it it's not a zombie coming back from the dead it's this guy who won't die because his kind can't die. That's the point. You know, you'll never get rid of guys like that. And that's what the movie's saying. So it makes no sense whatsoever in conventional horror movie terms. But it makes all the sense in the world if you think about it in symbolic terms. That's a movie that I was amazed to see Sean cover. And yet... When by the time you get to the end of England screaming, when you've read through the whole thing, you think the corpse is is perfect. You know, you almost as though this might have been a film that he saw one night, and he thought that's my starting point. I want to write a book about this. I want to write a book about Little England and about English attitudes. The corpse may well have been one of the films that it all stands from. So uh, yeah. I'd recommend uh, seeing that movie if you've not seen it. And I think not only will you understand the, the single chapter in England screaming better, but I think you'll understand the whole picture. You'll, you'll get the whole book much, much more if you watch and interpret the movie The Corpse. So, yeah, what a treat for me. It's always been a favourite of mine. I, I love political horror and I love social horror. And to see a movie that actually makes demands of its audience. In, we, you know, we mentioned this about one or two others like Symptoms as well. But I think The Corpse is, is the very, very best at doing that because it doesn't allow for conventional interpretation. It doesn't make any sense whatsoever unless 
you add extra layers to it and it, it forces the audience to do that it's a brilliant film you asked me earlier on daryl whether this book will be ex accessible to people who haven't seen the films i'm going to throw that back to you as well as somebody who's seen as, as you just referred deep dived is there what would you expect the i'm not talking about you specifically now daryl because you're a much more expansive person and a much more accepting person but your hardcore british hammer horror fan who loves those films thinks horror movies finished in 1982 when the hammer tv series finished or whatever and 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 don't recognize anything afterwards what what are they are they liking this or are they reading it going like ah, that's not what dracula would do that's not what um the dummy from dead of night would do you know in in the main there's been a very very good response to it i i i think that the sort of people you're talking about and they do exist and there are a lot of them and i know a lot of them are people that haven't actually bothered picking this book up i think most of the people that have gone for this and that have read it and quite a few on my recommendation are are the the breed of british horror fan who are prepared to to think about the films and are prepared to interpret them and are prepared to politicize them so yeah i i think i think there's a definite divide there and i think it's worked out fairly straightforwardly on 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 this the battle lines have been drawn i think the people you're talking about who might pick holes in this book are the same sort of people who, who wouldn't bother reading it um so so yeah I, I think it's got appeal to a very open-minded readership and that applies whether you've seen the films or not we talked about the the, the <laughs> contemporary elements to this book we talked about straw dogs before we started here and um, potentially one of the more controversial aspects of this book um is is, is its depiction of of of, of straw dogs itself a very controversial film yeah and sean addresses that controversy in the book you know we won't go into into detail because uh, you know you're you're a family audience out there but uh, if you know straw dogs you know what we're talking about and sean it could could be accused of possibly you know mansplaining or whatever the modern term is but uh, um but I, I i think he addresses the contentious issues of straw dogs in a way that's as good as any i've ever read now, what's interesting about this chapter is it's become very current because um, we've talked about how the uh, the individual chapters and the book as a whole has this crossover between characters. Well, here's here's one spoiler for you in England screaming. David and Amy Sumner, the characters played by Dustin Hoffman and Susan George in Straw Dogs, go for a night out one night and there's a circus in town. They go and visit the circus. And it happens to be Papa Lazarus Pandemonium Carnival from the League of Gentlemen. And of course, that's big in the news at the moment this week with the, uh, the controversies about episodes being pulled and so on. It remains very sort of relevant. And I don't think anyone will be throwing copies of Sean's book in the bin or anything because David Sumner, Dustin Hoffman is actually sat there. The spectacle, the idea that Dustin Hoffman's watching Papa Lazarus is just so great, I think. And in the book, Sean, very presciently, this is how Sean's managed to predict this, I don't know, but he actually has Dustin Hoffman as David Sumner sitting in the audience, open-mouthed, watching Papa Lazarou cavorting about on stage, and he turns to his wife and says, geez, he's in blackface. What, what are they doing? And he says, are they going to be burning, cross, burning crosses next? And he's, he's absolutely appalled by what he's looking at. Uh, again, it's a sign of just how on the ball Sean is about British political and social situations that almost by accident he's he's managed to predict another controversy. You know, he's written about this six well, months Well, he does, but I think, I think one of the things that stood out to me, because it, it, the sort of like Britain is racist um, uh, sort of like angle to some of those things in, in there comes back in the American Werewolf in London chapter. Yeah, where it's better, and he's and, and the guy is talking like, my God, they're so racist in the, in this country. You wouldn't get this in America. 
literally said, and he says that in the book. It's like, yeah, I'm not sure that's <laughs> a really good interpretation of, of situation. Yeah, yeah, and maybe you know, at the time American Werewolf in London was made, you know, you'd, you'd got Reagan just in as president, but we'd we'd had four four great years of Jimmy Carter, you know, and uh, things things were on a more sort of liberal tip over there, you know, they were all about to change. American Werewolf in London is such a great film for that as well. John Landis is good at that, and and it's one good thing about British horror is some of the best British horror films and some of the most incisive films in terms of commenting on the British character are movies like Deathline, which was made by Gary Sherman, Straw Dogs, which was made by Peckinpah, American Werewolf in London, which was made by John Landis. When Americans come over here and make British horror films, they actually nail our character. And as, as people have pointed out, there's, there's so many great sort of uh, uh, digs at Britain in American Werewolf in London. One of the best is, uh, and the situation's changed now, but you have to think back to 1980, 81. David Norton sat in, in the flat on his own. Um, Jenny Agutter's character's gone off to work. You know, she's gone to the hospital to work. He sat on his own with nothing to do. And he turns the TV on and there are three channels. And one of them's got like a, 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 a darts match. One's got the BBC Two test card, and one's got a, an advert for the News of the World with a page three model. And um, and this is all that's on television. And and he he can't believe what he's seeing. You know, not only are there only three channels, but they're all terrible. And uh, so I think Landis sort of nailed that in the film, and I think Sean's carried that over to the uh, the way that the characters work in the book. Yeah. The character does mention that in, in the, the page three girls. It's just like, yeah, there's naked women on their national newspapers. <laughs> right. When, it's, when, you, when you grew up in that period, it was just there. And it was just like, my God, that's just insane to yeah. think that it was okay to publish yeah. naked yeah. pictures yeah. in your national newspaper. Well, you know, our, our history is crazy, it's isn't it? it? And our modern history is even crazier. One, one, one of the things I wanted to uh, mention as well in terms of this, this issue about um, the way Sean talks about Britain, the character of Julian Carswell, the um, demonologist and um, Satanist and occultist from uh, Night of the Demon, great black and white 50s movie, and it's got this central character, Julian Carswell, who's almost this sort of Alistair Crowley type uh, figure. And he appears in the opening chapter of England Screaming. He combats the Duke de Richelieu, yet another Christopher Lee character. And they're, they're, they're fighting over the, the birth of, of Damien Thorne, the events of, of the movie The Omen. And it turns out that the Duke de Richelieu goes over to Italy to try and kill Damien before he's born. Uh, and that's that's chapter one. So Julian Carswell plays a big part in that. Now, later on in the book, Sean does a chapter on what was banned for many, many years, the Dennis Potter play for today, Brimstone and Treacle, which features the devil as a major character. And Sean has Damien Thorne stepping into the devil role rather than Michael Kitchen or Sting, who played him in the in the iterations of the of the Potter play, he actually has Damien Thorne as the devil coming in, and uh, and he he goes into this sort of middle class household, and he does all the things that happen in Brimstone and Treacle. Again, we won't we won't go into detail. Within that chapter, there's a little history of the the father from the uh, the, the Dennis Potter play, and it turns out that years before. He's become involved in a um, semi-political, semi-social sort of group that, that, you know, have meetings in the local village hall and so on and have a pint every now and then. And Julian Carswell turns out to be the guy who's been behind this little group. And it's all a front for a, um, an almost UKIP-like organisation. The idea is that in every town in Britain, there's a group of these sort of lower middle class guys who work nine to five every day, and go home and, and sort of eat their steak and kidney pie, put their feet up in front of the TV. Their wife does all the cleaning and everything, you know, and gets them a beer. And these guys are all sort of targeted by, by people like Julian Carswell to form these groups that then turns into a sort of mass movement. So mass movement. So Carswell's actually being pitched here as being in the lineage that stems from Oswald Mosley in the 1930s, 
through to um, the guy that the establishment seems to have tried to build up and didn't quite get there with him, Nick Griffin, in, in through the 70s and 80s, and then on to the, the more successful um, character of recent years, Nigel Farage, who, who's still around like a bad penny, you know. What Sean does brilliantly is says, okay, we've got this lineage in Britain of every, every 20 or 30 years, you know, one of these shady figures pops up and promotes the right wing's causes for them and, and brings them down to a populist level. And Sean brilliantly writes Julian Carswell into that and says, right, I've got this Satanist character from Night of the Demon. I'm going to turn him into Nigel Farage. He's going to be that sort of character in the 1950s and 60s. And I think that chapter on Brimstone and Treacle is so good. I mean, Pot Potter's writing itself, these, it's, it's all about, you know, the world of fantasy and the world of harsh reality all sort of bleeding into one another. Brimstone and Treacle being one of his most successful attempts at that. And, um, and for Sean to then come along and rewrite that and throw Damien Thorne into it and to have Julian Carswell as this sort of shady right-wing figure, this sort of populist figure, is just a masterstroke, I think. And um, it's for me, that's probably the one chapter that gets the core of the tone of the book absolutely right. I think that's the chapter that everything else sort of stems out of. It wouldn't surprise me to learn that that might, that might well have been the first chapter that Sean wrote. It certainly mm. feels like it to me. It feels as though it's like the core of the whole thing. Very good. Um, <coughs> unless there's anything else you want to draw from this book, Daryl, I think we should call it a day on that one there. Yeah, I've, I've talked a lot about it online as well. So I'm, I'm, uh, I'm <laughs> sort of done really. Um, but yeah, I think, um, do go out and read England Screaming, you know, if, if you're at all interested in British horror films, you'll get a lot out of it. But I think if you're interested in British politics, you'll you'll find something in there too. And, um, and as Adam says, you know, if you don't know the films, read it with a notebook, read it with one eye on whatever you can find, um, uh, you know, in your DVD collection or online or wherever. A lot of these films are out there. They're not all old films. Um, Sean covers covers films like A Dark Song from about four or five years ago, brilliantly ties that in as well. Really, really clever way in which he sort of ties that into the whole narrative. It's got things like Dead Man's Shoes in there. So even if you only know the fairly recent films, you'll find things in there that you recognise. And yeah, as you've said, Adam, it's a great primer. It's a great way to sort of get into British horror and to come at British horror from an angle if I, I sort of envy new viewers, really, because if, if, if you're coming into British horror, having read England Screaming, you're doing it right because you'll be looking for the more political type films. And they're often the very best ones. Cool. Great stuff. Thank you very much, Daryl. Uh, we will be back again together to talk about something else in a couple of weeks time. Um, yes. Thank you very much, Daryl. Thank you. Thanks for listening.